yet again, silence the sins or peace the sins as the kids leave. <coughs> I'll just invite you to um, bow your heads as we start with a quick prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we open your word and uh, as we seek you this morning, I pray that uh, we'll hear you speak and that you'll have something personal and, and practical for each one of us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. So good morning everyone, my name's Jason, I'm one of the, on the leadership team here at Refresh, and it's a real um, honour to be able to open God's word for you this morning. We're in part two of a four-part series, which I forget the title of, someone help me out. When the going gets tough... That's right, when the going gets tough. And, um, and I have to say, that last song in particular, guys, um, musicians, thank you so much. That was, um, that was spot on. Um, so last week, we were privileged to have Cindy Sykes speak with us, and she spoke about resilience. She spoke about the facts or, or how God can, a relationship with God can actually help us bounce back from those hard times. But what about when you're in the middle of those hard times? What do we do then? And, and that's what we want to have a, a spend a bit of time on this morning. Last week we spoke about resilience and bouncing back. This week, this week I want to talk about the pit. When you're in the middle of it. When you're right there. Because I tell you what, sometimes life's the pits. Sometimes life really is the pits. And life turns every person up and down. No one escapes unscathed. We'd be foolish to think that we're invulnerable or that we're somehow in control of life. It's just not the way it is. So many people around us are hurting. The Sydney Morning Herald reported earlier this week that one in ten Australians are on antidepressants. One in ten. And even in our own little church here at Refresh, I know there are so many people that are going through tough times or hardship or struggling on different, with different things. Just in the last few weeks, I've had a number of conversations with friends of ours who are facing some of life's greatest challenges, um, illness, relationship issues, unemployment. I was speaking to one friend who just lost his job. His wife isn't working because they've got a, a young baby. And that in itself poses a whole bunch of issues. You know, the sleepless nights and, um, and having to give up your social life that you've been used to with your first child and um, everything else that goes with just having to be on call 24-7 for this tiny, little, smelly, noisy thing that's entered into your home. It's not all bad, but you know what I mean, right? And we were talking and, you know, they've only just moved to Australia not too long ago and how are they going to pay the bills? How long is it going to take them to find a new job? Like, what do they do now? What do you say? What do you say to someone like that when you're speaking with them? And some of you may have heard that um, just a couple of weeks ago on the first day of school, it wasn't that long ago. It might feel like a lifetime for some of you teachers, but it was only a few weeks ago. On the first day of school, um, while dropping her kids off at school for the very first day, a very close friend of ours received a phone call telling her that her sister 
committed suicide overnight. <laughs> and her body was found in the morning by her young child. There's no father, well, not that you want to have around. He's gone. And our friend, when she phoned me, she was in shock, sobbing, completely shattered by the news, unable to even stand. She said on the phone, she said, Jace, I can't feel my legs. They're just numb. Someone had to drive her home from the school run, and that's where I caught up with her. I helped her out of the car, and she was just shaking uncontrollably. Tears running down her face. I just gave her a big hug, held her. And she kept saying, she kept asking, why? Why did she do that? How could she do that? Why? What do you say to that? You'll get through this. I know it hurts. It's going to take time, but don't despair. Somehow God will use this mess for good, and he, he will get you through this. Hmm. Is that too audacious to say something like that? Dare we say words like that? How can we have the nerve to speak such promise into such tragedy? Such despair that it feels like a big dark pit that swallowed you up with jagged rocks and such steep sides that you can't climb out. And even if you could climb out, you'd just be thrown right back into that pit. It reminds me a little bit of the beginning of the story of Joseph. Cindy spoke about Joseph last week and his story is a bit of a theme, I guess, for the next few weeks. And we read um, at the beginning of his story, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and they took him and threw him into a pit. And as they sat down to their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites on their way down to, uh, down to Egypt. Can you imagine how much, how much emotion is caught up in those few words? They stripped him down and threw him into a pit. Can you imagine how Joseph was feeling being sold as a slave by his brothers to his uh, uncles and cousins, the Ishmaelites? The fear, the betrayal of this young boy the hurt, the loneliness, the depression, the uncertainty. Now you see, Joseph's pit was a literal pit, but maybe your pit came in the form of a diagnosis, a traumatic injury, or abuse, or loss of a loved one, or divorce, or unemployment, loneliness, depression, addiction, or a pit. And sometimes... It's not one of those big things. Sometimes it's not the death of a loved one. It's not big. It's just... It's just the pit. 
what's God doing when you're in the pit? I know what we're doing. I know what we're doing. We're, we're biting our nails. We're pacing the st- uh, floor. We're stressing, crying, perhaps drinking or medicating or even giving up. But what does God do when we're in the pit? You know what he says? He says he fights for us. Did you know that? God says, when you're in the pit, I fight for you. He steps into the ring, he points us to the corner, he rolls up his sleeves and he takes over. That's his promise. In Exodus, when Moses and his people are trapped between an ocean and the most powerful army in the world at that time, you know what he says? He says, remain calm and I, the Lord, will fight for you. His job is to fight. And our job is to trust, not to direct him, not to question him, just to trust. David says in the Psalms, truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress and I won't be shaken. Now Joseph's story gets worse, quite a bit worse before it gets better. And I certainly encourage you to read his story. Um, if you don't know it in particular, but if you, even if you do, go back and have a look. In fact, when you leave this morning, over on our Connect desk over here, we've, you'll see these pages, and it's got, you'll get through this at the top. And I encourage you to grab one of these. Um, on here, I've listed exactly where you can find the story of Joseph in the Bible, so you can read it. And I've also referenced Max Licardo's book by the same title um, as to where I've actually got a lot of the material for this morning's sermon. And I encourage you, uh, if you're interested, to maybe read that. I've also listed a whole bunch of promises that God gives us in the Bible about how, he, how he's with us and how he helps us through tough times. And I also want to warn you that this morning, in our little talk this morning, I'm going to reference a whole bunch of Bible stories this morning. And you may not know all the stories, that's okay. Because on that piece of paper, I've also listed all those stories and I've listed where you can find them in the Bible. And there's actually just enough that you can read one every morning and evening for the next week if you wanted. That was sheer coincidence. I've also listed a little exercise at the bottom of the page, um, a practical exercise that you can apply to your life to actually put what we're going to talk about into practice if you want to do that. So grab one of those from the Connect desk on the way out. So when we read the story of Joseph, we find that a few things. We find, first of all, that he never gave up. Bitterness never staked its claim. Anger never metastasized into hatred. His heart never hardened. His resolve never banished, uh, vanished. He, never, he not only survived, but through his story we find that he actually thrived. In the end, he ascended like a rocket from slave and prisoner to the second most powerful man on earth in his generation. The second most powerful man on earth in his generation. And he saved the known world from starvation. What a story. What a roller coaster. How? How did he flourish in the midst of tragedy? Well, we don't have to speculate. Later in life, when he's speaking to those same brothers who threw him into the pit right at the beginning, this is what he said. You meant to harm me, but God intended it to bring about good and to save many lives. And what I find interesting, in the original language in Hebrew that Joseph was speaking, that when he says bring about good, God intended to bring about good, that word that he uses for bring about is actually a verb. It's a doing word. It's relate, it relates to construction. 
It's the sort of word that you would use when you're talking about an architect or a builder who's designing and building a house or a road. Who's thankful that the Rothwell roundabout's finally gone? All right, yeah, yeah, there's hands. There's hands going up. That roundabout was terrible. And for me, heading home in the evening, at a, you know, after work, you could grow a five o'clock shadow just waiting in line to try to get into that roundabout. Like, it was, it was poor. And sitting in the traffic through that construction zone was even worse. Right? You know what I'm talking about. And it seemed to go on forever. But somewhere, someone must have had a plan. There was a completion date. And now, it's brilliant. It's so much better. That's the kind of verb that Joseph's using when he talks about God intended for good. God intended to design and build for good. And by giving us stories like Joseph's, God allows us to study how he works, how he plans, and how he builds and constructs things in and around our lives. If God can save Joseph from his pit, can't he save you from your pit as well? You will get through this. It may not be painless. It may not be quick. But don't despair. God will use this mess for good. And he will get you through this. You know, the Bible, the Bible is filled with stories of God's deliverance. It's chock-a-block. Out of the lion's den for Daniel. Out of prison for Peter. Out of the whale's belly for Jonah. Out of Goliath's shadow for David. Out of the storm for the disciples. Out of disease for the lepers out of doubting for Thomas, out of the shipwreck for Paul, and out of the grave for Lazarus. Constantly, God is getting people through stuff, through the Red Sea on dry ground, through the wilderness, through the valley of the shadow of death. Through is actually one of God's favorite words in the Bible. In Isaiah 43, 2, this is what he says. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire... You will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, your Savior. Because you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you. Do not be afraid. For I am with you. It won't be painless. won't be quick. But God will use your mess for good. He will get you through. You are a version of Joseph. You present a challenge to Satan's plan. You carry something of God within you, something noble and holy, something the world needs, wisdom, kindness, mercy, talents. If Satan can neutralize you through your pit, he can mute your influence. The story of Joseph is in the Bible for this reason, to teach us to trust that God always trumps evil. What Satan intends for evil, God the master weaver, God the master builder, always redeems for good. Joseph would be the first to tell you that life in the pit stinks. Yet for all its rottenness, the pit forces us to look upwards. Someone from up there 
needs to come down here and extend their hand and pull us out of the pit. God did this for Joseph at the right time, in the right way, and his plan is to do the same for you. Life turns every person upside down. No one escapes unscathed, and you'd be foolish to think that you're invulnerable or that you're in control. But we would be more foolish to think that evil wins the day. The Bible just resonates with a steady drumbeat of faith. God recycling evil into goodness. We see Joseph's words to his brothers. You meant evil against me, but God made it into good. And this is, re- this is a repeated pattern in Scripture. Evil, God, good. Evil, God, good. Evil, God, good. Evil, God, good. Evil came to Job. It tempted him, it tested him. Job struggled, but God counted. He spoke truth, he declared sovereignty. And Job in the end chose God. Satan's prime target became God's prime witness and good resulted. Evil came to Moses. It convinced him to murder an Egyptian guard, forced him to fear and run for his life. God counted. He put Moses on a 40-year cool down out in the desert. Moses chose God. He liberated God's people from slavery and good resulted. Evil came to David and he committed adultery. Evil came to Daniel and he was dragged as a slave to a foreign land. Evil came to Nehemiah and the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed. But God counted. And because he did, David wrote the songs of grace. Daniel ruled in a foreign land. And Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem at Babylon's expense. God counted and good happened. And Jesus, how many times in his earthly life did bad become good? The innkeeper told Jesus' parents to try their luck in the barn. That was bad. And God entered the world in the humblest of places on earth. That was good. The wedding had no wine. Bad. The wedding guests witnessed the first miracle of Jesus. Good. The storm scared the faith out of the disciples. Bad. The sight of Jesus walking on the water. Good. 5,000 men needed food for themselves and their families. Ha! Bad day to be a disciple. And Jesus takes a basket of bread and fish and turns it into a banquet. All of a sudden, it's a good day to be a disciple. With Jesus, bad becomes good. Just as night becomes day, regularly, reliably, refreshingly, redemptively. With Jesus, bad becomes good. Picture the cross. On that lonely hill. Can you hear the soldiers pound the nails? Jesus' enemies smirking. Satan's demons lurking. All that is evil rubbing their hands in glee, saying, this time, Satan whispers, this time I will win. And 
for a gut-wrenching Friday, a silent Saturday, it appeared that maybe he had the final breath, the battered body, Mary wept, blood ran red and seeped into the dirt. Followers lowered God's son before the sunset. Soldiers sealed the tomb and the cold darkness of night fell upon the earth. Yet what Satan intended as the ultimate evil, even that, God used for the ultimate good. An angel came down and God's glory blinded. He hurled that rock away. And Jesus walked out of that tomb with a smile on his face and a bounce in his step. And if you look closely, you can almost imagine Satan fleeing from that cemetery with his forked tail between his legs. Will I ever win? He grumbled. No, no he won't. And that's exactly the point. No, he won't. The stories of Jesus, of David, of Daniel, of Jonah, of Joseph, and thousands of others assure us that what Satan intends for evil, God uses for good. Do you believe? Do you believe that there is no evil beyond God's reach? Think about that for a moment. Do you believe that there is no evil beyond God's reach? That he can redeem every pit? Do you really believe that? Including the ones that you might find yourself in now? Because when you're in the pit, sometimes it's not easy to believe that. When God doesn't do what we want... It's not easy. Never has been, it never will be. But faith is the conviction that God knows more than we do about this life and that He will get us through it. Remember, disappointment is an attitude. We choose our attitudes to some extent. Disappointment is an attitude. And it's cured by revamped expectations. I love the story of a man who went to the pet store in search of a singing parakeet because his house was too quiet. He must have been a bachelor with no kids or wife. But um, he went to the store to get this parakeet. And the store owner had just the bird for him, so the man bought it. And the next day, the bachelor came home from work to a house full of music. He went to the cage to feed the bird and noticed for the first time that this bird only had one leg. He felt cheated that he'd been sold a one-legged bird, so he phoned back the pet store to complain. What do you want? The store owner responded. A bird who can sing or a bird who can dance? Good question. Good question for times of disappointment. What do you want? I may have told you this story before about how one week before Melissa and I were married, Melissa was a, a passenger in a terrible boating accident. The boat actually flipped upside down before crashing into a rock cliff around the edge of a, of a river. The impact of the crash completely destroyed the boat. It was going that fast. And it was an absolute miracle that Melissa survived by cartwheeling clear 
out of the opposite side of the boat, in the pike position, with a twist, backwards. True story. We actually have a picture of the moment that this happened. That was um, Melissa's uh, version of the moment when it happened. But I tell you what, it, w- it was a serious accident. And we really were blessed that Melissa survived. And we were praising God that she was okay. I couldn't help praying, thanks God, thank you for, s- you know, we're getting married next week. What, I, you know. But the elephant in the room question is, if Melissa hadn't survived, Would God still be good? I'd spent the better part of that afternoon broadcasting God's goodness, and yet if I'd lost Melissa that day, would I have reached a different verdict about God? Is God only good when the outcome is good for me? When we pass our test, we say God's good. When the university admits us, we say God's great. When we get a pay rise, we say, oh, God's so good. When our sports team wins, we say, God is good, especially when it's the blues. When the cancer's in remission, God is good. Would we and do we say the same under different circumstances in the cemetery as well as the nursery, in the unemployment line as well as the grocery line? Is God always good? When God fails to meet our bottom line expectations and we're left spinning in a tornado of questions and rocking our grief in the corner, is God still good then? Is he really good at all? Or is God angry with me? Or is God stumped? Or is God overworked? Is his power limited? His authority restricted? Did the devil just outwit him this time? Is that why this happened? When life isn't good, what are we to think about God? And where is he in all of this? Joseph's words to Pharaoh actually offer us some help in understanding this. The Bible doesn't quote many of Joseph's words. But when he reveals the meaning of Pharaoh's dream, we see a man who understood both seasons of God's jurisdiction. The season of plenty and the season of famine. Joseph said that both were decreed by God. Both were decreed by God. Well, but how could this be? Was the calamity God's idea? Of course not. God never creates evil. God can never do wrong. It's impossible for the Almighty to do any evil, says Job and James in the Bible. He is the essence of goodness. How can someone who is the pure essence of good do anything bad? Plus, he's all-powerful and sovereign of the entire universe. So how are we to factor the presence of calamities in this God's world? How do we do that? Well, here is how the Bible does it. The Bible says that God permits it about all it says god permits it when the demons begged jesus to send them into a herd of pigs the bible says he gave them permission god at times permits tragedy he allows satan the freedom 
to unleash his mayhem, Satan's mayhem, to reveal the character of the devil. But he doesn't allow Satan to triumph. Did you hear that? Sometimes God gives Satan the freedom to do what Satan wants to do, but he doesn't let Satan triumph. Isn't that the promise of Romans 8, 28? And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. God promises to render beauty out of all things. You look at that verse again. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. God promises to render beauty out of all things, not each thing. The isolated events may be evil, but the ultimate culmination is good. And we see examples of this in our own life. When you were here this morning, if you, uh, you know, had a cup of coffee out here, when you sip on a cup of coffee and say, oh, that's good. Like, what do you really mean? What are you saying? Are you saying that the plastic cup's good or that the plastic bag that held the beans was good or that the beans themselves were good or that the hot water was good? Or are you saying that perhaps the coffee filter or the, you know, the, the barista was good? What are you actually saying? It's not the individual things. Good happens as the ingredients work together. The bag open, the beans ground into powder, the water heated to the right temperature. It's the collective cooperation of the elements that creates good. But how do we define good? We need to let God define good. Think about that for a moment. We need to let God define good. Our definition of good includes health, and comfort and recognition and perhaps a splattering of family holidays throughout the year. But what's God's definition of good? His definition in the case of his son Jesus Christ, the good life for his son Jesus Christ consisted of a dysfunctional family, struggles, storms, constantly serving others, betrayal, false accusations and a violent death. That was the good life for Jesus. But God worked it all together for the greatest of good, his glory and our salvation. And our faith rests in God's identity, who he is, not his activity. And realistically, God owes us no more explanation than what he's already revealed to us in Jesus' life and through the Bible. Besides, even if he did, would we understand it? Might the problem be less with God's plan and more about our limited perspective while living on this sinful world? Suppose the wife of George Frederick Handel came upon a page of her, fam her husband's famous masterpiece, Handel's Messiah. Are we all familiar with Handel's Messiah? Say she came across this. The entire work has over 200 pages um, to, to the music. Imagine if she discovered one page on the kitchen table and on that page her husband had written only one measure in a minor key, one that didn't work on its own. Suppose that she, armed with that one page of fragmented dissonance, marched into his studio and said, this music makes no sense, you're a lousy composer, Handel. <laughs> what would he say to that? What would he think? Perhaps something similar to what God thinks when we do exactly the same thing to him. We point to our minor key, our sick child, our crutches, our famine, and we say, this makes no sense. Yet out of all of his creation, how much have we seen? 
and of all his work, how much do we understand? Only a sliver, only a doorway peephole. Is it possible that some explanation for suffering exists of which we know nothing at all? What if God's answer to the question of suffering requires more megabytes than our puny minds have been given? Might the problem be less with God's plan and more about the fact that until we reach the end, we shouldn't jump to a conclusion? Perhaps for us, right now, it's just too soon to tell. I really like a story I read um, of a farmer and his only son in the days just before the American Civil War. Having only one horse, the farmer and his son worked long, hard days, sun up to sundown, just to get by with nothing to spare. And one day, while they were farming the land, their horse got spooked and it ran off and this poor son was devastated. What bad luck? Now what are we going to do? The father replied, good luck, bad luck. Let's wait and see. A few days later, their horse returned with six wild horses in tow. The son was ecstatic. Wow, Dad, what great luck. Now we've got seven horses to farm the land. To which the father replied, good luck, bad luck. It's too soon to tell. Let's wait and see. Well, the next day, while breaking in one of the horses, the son was thrown, bucked off the horse, and he broke his leg. And the son cried, oh, father, I'm so sorry. Now you're going to have to work the farm all by yourself. What bad luck. To which the father replied, good luck, bad luck. It's too soon to tell. Well, it was only a couple of days later that the civil war broke out and all able-bodied young men were sent off to war. Mind you, this is a war of which one in four died. The average age was 26 years of age. And the farmer's son, having broken his leg, was allowed to stay home. Well, after the leg healed, the father had the only farm around with a son and seven horses to boot, and they were able to work that farm and prosper. At each stage of bad luck, the farmer could have given up, which could have prevented the farmer and his son from taking advantage of the good luck that was going to come. I say that in inverted commas, bad luck, good luck. What if Joseph had given up on God? Lord knows he could have turned his back on heaven. At any point along his broken road, he could have turned sour and walked away. No more, I'm done. God, I'm out. He had it tough. And you could give up on God as well. That's one option. But it makes no sense. And we know better. God sees Joseph in you. Yes, you, in the pit. God sees Joseph in you and God is speaking to you. God doesn't always offer us solutions, but he offers us the cross and a perfect eternity together. John writes, in this world you'll have trouble and Luke adds, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Trust God. Really trust God. And he will get you through. Will it be easy or quick? I hope so, but it seldom is. But don't despair. 
God will make good out of this mess and he will get you through. That is his reoccurring promise through every page of scripture. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we seek you out and as we learn more about you and as we face some hard to understand questions around why things happen, how they could be allowed. We thank you for the answers that you've given us. We thank you for the encouragement that you've given us, for the examples of how you've planned and worked in people's lives in the past because we know that that's how you plan and work in our life as well. We thank you that the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter we thank you for the peace that you give us. We thank you for loving us. And we thank you for being with us. And most of all, we thank you for, in every circumstance, taking the evil that Satan throws at us and somehow converting it into good. Be with us, strengthen us, encourage us, I pray. And help us to take the strength and the encouragement that you give us and to look for ways that we can pass that on to anyone around us who might be struggling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.